global financial services firm Deloitte projects that the collective economies of Latin America will grow by 3.8% this year alone. Some countries like Colombia are expected to grow by as much as 5.8%, far and above the worldwide average. After a rocky last few years for the global economy, where is this economic development coming from? And what does the future hold for our neighbors to the South? Good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program this evening features Jessica Bedoya, Chief of Staff and Chief Strategy Officer at the Inter-American Development Bank. I'd like to thank Jessica for her flexibility in converting this discussion to a webinar format. We are grateful that you are committing your time to share your expertise with us. If you are not a member of the World Affairs Council yet, please join us. We'd love to welcome you to our community of engaged and informed citizens. Visit our website at dfwworld.org for more information. The Council is committed to providing a safe environment within our capacity for our community members, including vaccination and mask requirements at our in-person events. So for the most up-to-date information on our health and safety practices, and again, to check out our calendar, go to our website at dfwworld.org. And I'll now invite our moderator, Ariel Tobin, to take over. Ariel is a partner at Jones Day's firm here in Dallas, defending corporations in civil, criminal, and regulatory disputes, including government enforcement actions. Ariel has conducted and managed multinational risk assessments, as well as sensitive internal investigations in more than 10 countries across North, Central, and South America, Europe, and Asia. Prior to, prior to practicing law, she earned her CPA license and worked for PwC. Ariel is deeply involved in local and international pro bono efforts as well. And she's also a newer board member of our council since last year, and we are so happy to have her with us and happy to have her expertise. And with that, I will hand it over to Ariel. Ladies, Thank you again for joining us. I'm excited about this evening's conversation. Thanks very much, Liz. I'm uh, very, very happy to be here and very happy to welcome our guest this evening, Jessica Bedoya. Uh, as Liz mentioned, she is the Chief of Staff and Chief Strategy Officer in the Office of the Presidency of the Inter-American Development Bank, or the IDB as they call it. The IDB dates back to 1959 and the organization is today the leading source of development financing for Latin America and the Caribbean. The bank works to improve lives through financial and technical support to reduce poverty and inequality, improve health and education, and advance infrastructure in those countries. Jessica's focus is on, on institutional strategy and investment policy. Her extensive leadership in international affairs includes over 15 years in the US government where she has held various foreign policy roles with the International Development Finance Corporation, the National Security Council, and the US intelligence community. She has served in the US embassy in Bogota, Colombia, and has worked in Haiti and the Eastern Caribbean. She holds a BA in international politics and international economics from GW, and a master's in world politics from the Catholic University of America. 
So she has lots of experience to share with us clearly, and I'm very excited to hear what she has to say. But as a starter, I think it would be really helpful for Jessica, for you to give us a little bit of a, uh, an intro into development banks and what it is that you do at IDB and, and the people that you serve. Sure. Thank you so much, Ariel and Liz and the whole team. And thank you again for this opportunity to expand broader knowledge here in the United States of what we're doing here at the Inter-American Development Bank. I say here, I speak to you from my, my residence as, as we've shifted all of our roles. Um, flexibility comes with the new normal that we're trying to grow into with COVID. So thank you again for the opportunity. I would say that to start, we are the premier development finance institution for Latin America and the Caribbean. And what does that mean? It means that we want to focus on a return on investment. The investment for us is for our 26 member countries throughout Latin America and the Caribbean to have sustainable opportunities for growth, job creation, and development. So as a development bank, we tend to focus on working with our member countries, with those governments, to identify projects that we could finance to implement reforms and structural changes that they are interested in that would help uh, with the provision of basic access to services for their, uh, their citizens. And we also have a private sector arm, and we're one of the most innovative institutions among development finance institutions because we have a private sector arm that focuses on IDB Invest on bigger ticket investment opportunities. And I'm talking about traditional sectors like infrastructure and telecom, and also an innovation laboratory called IDB Lab, where there we focus on really agile movement of investments, venture capital, seed capital, new entrepreneurs. We want to be disruptors in a lot of economies in Latin America and the Caribbean because that's how you create new markets. And I think combined, the Inter-American Development Bank has a great power, a power to convene multiple stakeholders across countries. And by that, I'm not even speaking about our 26 member countries. We also have global members, members from Europe and Asia who are shareholders in our institution. So wherever we're able to convene all of them to discuss the issues, the trends and the opportunities for investment and development uh, and sustainable growth in Latin America and the Caribbean. But also we have an immense power because we are the most esteemed institution across the entire region. So when people in Latin America and the Caribbean talk about the IDB, they talk about us as an institution that has 60 years of history behind it, of technical know-how and expertise, of operational excellence to the, to the degree that you can imagine in terms of creating development pilots and projects that can be scaled. Now, what we inherited, and when I say we, I mean us, the new administration that I'm a part of and proud to be a part of, We've inherited an amazing 60-year history with an amazing institution with a, a pristine reputation. So someone could ask themselves, what do you, where do you go next? And I think where we have a vision is how can we multiply, be a force multiplier for interested investors, a force multiplier for development, work with collaborators on the ground here in DC and across the United States. How can we improve conditions in Latin America and the Caribbean and have that day-to-day -day impact of improving people's lives? That's so excellent. And it, it, it's so clear that it has such a large macro impact. But the last thing you just said, which is was a day to day impact on improving people's lives. So what are some of the ways that um, so from a macro explanation to a micro explanation, yeah. some of the, the day to day ways that you um, impact lives in, in these countries? So we start with having conversations with governments because our role and why we have member countries is to develop and design plans that are holistic, that touch on priorities for development, that, that at its core wants to address 
the principal goals, which is get, getting rid of poverty, getting rid of uh, vulnerability, ensuring that rural communities are not rural anymore, that they have access to basic services and connectivity, making sure that governments are accessing their citizens and vice versa, that that social contract is strengthened. And I think with those core values of development, what we try to do every day is identify those projects and programs that go into the toughest areas. Our role in development and our risk threshold is, is pretty high. I mean, we're here to have positive impact in communities in far-flung areas of the entire region. And that's what we want to do. So what we try to do is work with governments, identify priorities in terms of sectors, in terms of um, opportunities for investment in areas that could bring jobs, new jobs that maintain the integrity perhaps of local rural communities in terms of, um, I'll give you an example, like artisanal mining for, you know, for, for one, where we cre create and bring in the financing structures and the tools necessary to support those efforts that in turn create that ecosystem that we want to see of development in these communities that then can be scaled, that can be replicated, where you take lessons learned and you take them to another area that might have a similar program or problem that we can tailor make the solution. So I think, you know, at its core day to day, what we want to make sure we do is have an impact on, again, poverty reduction. And let's, and let's just say poverty eradication. I mean, that's the goal for all of us to eventually be obsolete as an institution because you've solved all the problems, but we don't live in that world right now, at least not yet. I remain hopeful. But every day, that's what we're trying to do. And I, you know, we have a, we have a staff of 3,000 people in the institution that literally, and we have offices in 26 in those 26 member countries. So we are on the ground all the time. And part of our goal and our effort since we've come in in August, October of 2020 has been let's get to those difficult areas. Let's go take those risks because we can't just stay in capitals. We have to go talk to communities, be a bridge builder between governments and civil society, between governments and communities, because our role also as an, an apolitical and objective um, entity in a lot of these countries, the reason why we have the reputation we have is because we've been successful at bridging people together at, at bring, coming in with a very objective viewpoint to try to find a holistic solution. And I think that at, at the end of the day, when we talk about results, you know, we can turn to a lot of data and statistics, but what I always say to our, our executive team and to our staff, I just want to make sure that we have people who have what they need so that their struggle is at least a little bit better from Monday to Tuesday and better from Tuesday to Wednesday. If we can do that and create a solution that can afford itself to, to be seen as helping people day to day diminish that struggle and feel like they have an opportunity for once, then we've done our job. So can you tell us a little bit about who is your target investor? So where, where are you getting funds to, to fund these um, many programs across, I think you said 26 countries. So how are you generating those funds and, and what are the various types of investors that you have? And then also with that, how are you, you mentioned an increased risk profile as compared to, you know, traditional investments. So how are you mitigating some of that increased risk profile in your interactions with, with um, investors or, or fundraising? Sure. So on the public sector side, obviously our, our member states contribute. So they they also have an incentive to want to work with us and to put to put better value to every dollar that they put in. On the private sector side, we actually, because of 
of having this innovation laboratory as well as a traditional private finance, a development finance institution on the private side. We've been able to harness that to really, I would say, span a really broad audience of investors from your traditional institutional investors to those small impact investors that are just starting out. I think what they're interested in doing is coming to the IDB and working with the IDB to be that again, that bridge to the region to help them better understand the region of where they can find those opportunities. And we've been really successful also in building a really strong base of, of clients and relationships with, with financial institutions in the region, with other development banks, with commercial banks. Um, I, I would say even across Asia and Europe in terms of being able to bring in that money to mobilize those resources and then to catalyze that to be able to finance a lot of really complex and interesting projects. And I'm, I'm not speaking now just about uh, the, the ones I mentioned before, infrastructure or telecom, because those sector projects are important and huge. But in terms of addressing issues like gender, we've been able to have a higher impact because we've been able to work across the base of investors that are interested in Latin America and Caribbean and being able to structure these projects in a way and the financing in such a way where we can have measurable results on improving finance access to credit for women who are owners of small and medium-sized enterprises or, or being able to improve ESG standards. We use the array of tools from obviously traditional debt finance to as equity. So we're also trying to improve corporate governance and, and establish ESG is the, the new big thing. We've been leading on ESG for quite some time and we want to still be on the frontier of that. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do is by bringing in a different, the different array of investors, we're also trying to help our ability to provide a creative tool set for our clients. And we do that by building those relationships. And I think we've done a really good job so far but obviously the president of the bank and, the, and us as a whole team, we want to see more because I think that the markets are moving at a really fast clip nowadays. Um, we're doing a lot of creative things with social bonds. We could do a lot more. And what we're trying to do now through conversations like these is just expand awareness and knowledge that, that the IDB is here. We exist. We have a whole set of tools that we can apply private sector and public sector. And we're looking for new partners. And I think that we've, we've achieved some significant progress in the last year, but there's a lot more ground that we could, we could cover. How has your work um, impacted or is your work impacted by potentially unstable or unsafe environments in these various countries? I imagine um, some of the, the countries that you're working in have really, in, in certain locations, straight up dangerous conditions and, and in other places, unstable governments or dictatorships or, or various things. How do you work within those existing frameworks uh, to, to accomplish your goals? So I think that's also part of the risk calculus that we, we undertake. At the end of the day, um, our goal is to work with governments to address the needs of the citizens of these countries. And so I think, and, and Latin America has historically been turbulent. And I think we're, we've been going through a pretty hectic um, election season where we're seeing a lot of turnovers in governments and changes in governments, changes in priorities. And what we've been able to do is provide and steer the institution in a way that we continue to message to the outgoing and the incoming governments that we're, we want to remain the partner of choice. So for us, stability is, is not viewed in the traditional sense, like, you know, a policymaker would view it, you know, a change of government, what this is going to mean, because our priorities are the people. And at the end of the day, governments might have different approaches to problem solving. 
Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. But at the end of the day, they need to respond to their citizens too. So I think we're almost in a, in a very much a position of, I wouldn't say luxury, but not being a policymaking institution, we can adjust and be adaptive to the government's priorities. And we can be agile in how we respond and how we can provide inputs to improve their own plans and designs. Because as, you know, as part of our role as a development institution, you know, we, and part of the bridge that I said before, we can give them that feedback of what we're hearing on the ground, what we're hearing from communities and see how we can bridge those gaps. And so there, there is a significant value added in, in terms of our role, because for us, stability is just ensuring that they, that any government or administration that's coming in understands what our role is and who our priorities are set to, and they are set to addressing the development needs of the country. So clearly COVID has had a huge impact on everyone, I would say across the board, but can you tell us a little bit about the impact that COVID has had both on the countries that you serve and the people that you serve, but also on um, the IDB's projects and programs and, and have they been, or I, I, how have they been impacted by that? Sure. So obviously COVID for Latin America and the Caribbean has been, has had a devastating effect. I think that the growth rates that were said uh, earlier by Liz, I think we were optimistic. I think we'll remain optimistic and we're trying to, to ensure that we're there in lockstep with governments to ensure that they meet those growth rate goals. Um, but obviously COVID had a devastating effect on the region. We're talking about a middle class that has been completely decimated. Over 60 million people dropped from the middle class back into poverty. And that's a complete regression of 20 plus years of development growth and advancement in the region. So when we've come in, we've come into a region that was not only already volatile because of a lot of political upheaval that we saw in late 2019, COVID, really just compounded that by now introdu introducing a regression of what had been 20 years of economic progress. So now how do we see that in terms of our operations? I mean, COVID just technically speaking, uh, you know, the bank was shut down until last uh, September. Um, no one could travel to go look at projects. We were, we've been employing a lot of useful technology, drone technology to go observe projects, make sure that they're on pace. And now we've slowly started traveling again so we can continue the, the business at the bank. But certainly COVID affected us uh, logistically in terms of being able to get on the ground and get the pulse of the people. Thankfully, before the variant, we had a good uh, six, seven month period where we were traveling to talk to our clients. People were, the business was starting to get back into shape. And we're hopeful that the variant will be just a blip um, on the radar and we can get back to that. But I would say that in terms of demand, there's there's been no greater demand from our clients than during COVID. Um, what we did last year in terms of financing, we have pushed out the door nearly $22.6 billion in financing for the region. And that's a drop in the bucket in terms of the need that we're seeing in the region. And we're prepared to do more. But when I say those figures, it's not to say 
great. You're a development bank. You've now given nearly 23 billion in financing to your clients. That's really great. What I mean is that's that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more need. There's a lot more demand that we're seeing. And there's a constant need to not only address the health crisis, which we've done effectively, we cut down our project review times internally so that we could quickly get disbursements out the door and money to the countries that need it. But also we've been trying to figure out a mapping of how to then prioritize sectors for an economic recovery. And a lot of the conversations we're having with governments today is, okay, what does an economic recovery really look like? What sectors are we looking at? If you want formalization of jobs, let's talk about that. How do we work with your private sector? And I think the conversations have evolved from help us find vaccines and fund them. And we've done that. We set aside a billion dollars for facility to fund vaccines. We're now looking at vaccine production. How do you grow a supply chain? For vaccine production in Latin America. So I'm really excited because as, you, as you're living in a crisis, you're seeing the demand change and become more sophisticated. And it, it gets me excited because it means we have to be more sophisticated to respond. And our, our offer, our value proposition to clients has got to keep getting better and better. Um, you know, I think writ large, also what we've seen is, is an understanding that the public sector can't do it alone. Uh, we've seen increasing debt burdens on most of our member countries in the region, and that's troubling. And so what are we ready to do? We're ready to step in and help them. How do we address the debt burden? How do we fill gaps for them? How do we bring in and mobilize private sector? So it's it's been an interesting dynamic seeing them since, since speaking to clients, seeing them evolve in terms of the demands, moving beyond triaging and putting out the fire to being much more strategic in, ter in terms of the longer term development goals. And we're there along with them every day. So one of our um, audience members asked the major difference between what you do, um, what, what the IBB does and standard financial aid provided by governments. And, and what you were just saying is it sounds like the difference is you're bringing together the public and private sector for some unique opportunities. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about how that works? So what we do in terms of the, the development aid versus what we do, we actually do provide, when you think about it, when we think about development aid, we think we just bilaterally give money to a country and they don't have to pay us back. And we do have that. We have grants and we have what we call non-reimbursable technical cooperation resources where countries don't have to pay us back. But what we do try to do on the majority of, in terms of the financing that we do provide, it's all um, priced lending. So we have, as a bank, we have to remain competitive. We have to work with, with countries and members that see us as competitive in terms of our lending prices, our rates, the tenures of our loans. Um, one of the biggest uh, selling points that we have is that we do provide lending to countries at much longer tenors. What do I mean by tenor? That's the, the number of years for which the loan lasts. So a lot of people come to us because we're able to provide that long-term financing and that you know, long-term um, lending. And so we provide the gamut. What we, what we don't do in, when we talk about development aid in the traditional sense where you just give them a check and you walk away. We don't walk away. That's not that's not a, a formula for success. We stay there and we partner and we share the knowledge. Like I said, we have 60 years of history, which means 60 years of technical expertise, knowledge, a lot of lessons learned, failures and successes. And a lot of the governments that perhaps I would say like a government like Peru who has access to the markets and can get financing and lending perhaps at better rates, then for them, we tailor make a solution. Maybe for them, 
the better deal is talk to our private sector. We'll leverage and bring in those stakeholders and let's give you our technical assistance. What do you want to do that we can then help you execute? So the array of tools spans from knowledge to financing, and it's that combination and finding that sweet spot of what the client needs that is really the exciting part because then we can tailor make that, uh, that package for countries for private sector clients so that they get the full array of what they need to make sure that they're successful. And I think that the important value added that I think the institution was good to a point, but is doing much better in the last year, is being able to, to ensure that the client knows that we can provide the whole package. We can be that one-stop shop. That's excellent. So you described a moment ago the really dramatic backslide that that happened during COVID, mostly in 2020, I would assume, and some in 2021. Were there opportunities to um, capitalize on some of the changes and the disruption in the marketplace, um, perhaps with, you know, disruption in supply chains, for example, and opportunities to perhaps bring some of those supply chains back to those countries and, and improve in that respect? Absolutely. And I think what I wanted to do, I think on, and that's the nearshoring concept that I think a lot of that has been in the media a lot since COVID began. I think very simply put, we as an administration at the IDB see a whole host of opportunities um, in the region. We actually set out as a mission statement, uh, what's called the Vision 2025, which sets out five areas um, that we have been focusing on to try to drive investment and development uh, and job growth. And those five of which nearshoring is one of them, um, span from gender to climate to SME financing and others. Now, specifically on the supply chains, that is a huge, huge opportunity for Latin America and the Caribbean. I think that the, over, the global overdependence, I would say, on China was a wake-up call. And I think we're still con continuing to see that with the slow movement of container ships and ports and the exorbitant price increases in the movement of goods. And I think for Latin America and the Caribbean, that presents a huge, huge opening to bring, finally bring in interested investors and to become new markets, which has been the goal all along. And I think what we as the IDB have done is we, and we, I'm really proud of the work that our, our great teams have put together. In the last year, what we've designed is a nearshoring toolkit. And what does that toolkit do? Effectively, it brings together all our very specific tools and knowledge base on supply chains, the development and design of supply chains, the creation of new markets, and as accompanying that, a mapping of the region to find out what are those comparative advantages within the region, because every country is at a very different place. And so what we wanted to do is be able to offer interested investors that knowledge to say, if you want to produce this, go to these two countries. If you want to start from scratch, go to this country. They have a good environment. And what we've been doing with this toolkit is shopping around that map of opportunities for investments to, from semiconductors to textiles to agricultural products to commodities to say, hey, here are countries that are producers. They don't have a market. They're looking for interested investors and we are going to come in with you and we want to help develop this brand new market. So nearshoring as a whole is incredibly complex. But when you get down to the brass tacks of it in Latin America and in the Caribbean, they are a breadbasket of commodities, agricultural products, textiles, human capital, sophisticated production of semiconductors and airplane parts and motor vehicle parts. Why couldn't they 
be a hub for production for a lot of those goods that could then go to the United States as an end market or Europe. So that's what we're continuing to focus on. We've seen a lot of good progress, a lot of interested investors. There's a lot of countries in the region to include Colombia and Ecuador who are trying to reap from the benefits of this interest. And we're there again, partnering with them hand in hand to see how we can best bring those investors and bring those opportunities and marry those up. That's wonderful. Um, you also mentioned that in addition to the nearshoring concept and nearshoring toolkit, recently you've put a lot of focus and energy on um, gender programs or, or focus on bringing women uh, into the conversation, so to speak, in some of these countries. Can you tell us about a few of those initiatives? Sure. I'll just put it bluntly. Latin America and the Caribbean still suffers from a lot of machismo. And women are still undervalued. Um, there's been great, great progress, but a lot more that needs to be done. And when we came in, we really saw, again, an, a chance to finally shine the spotlight on a gaping hole in terms of development. For a region that wants development, you can't ignore 50% of your population. So what have we done? We've made gender, like I said, one of our five key priorities of Vision 2025. Um, and through that, we've tried to promote uh, a lot of financing for projects, which I'm really proud of, uh, to address gender-based violence, um, to address the improvement of the, of the justice system in terms of women's access to justice across the region. We finance projects addressing that. And we finance a lot of projects to ensure that women and girls have equal access to education. And I, I'm really excited about all of that. And I, and I think that all of that work combined is going to have really good impact, but we still need to do more. And so this year, what we've done is we've started to pivot to figure out how to design what I'm calling a gender-based uh, a gender-based business model. And what do I mean by that? And this is a pilot that could then be replicated to other communities, LGBT, uh, the handicapped, a lot of vulnerable communities that are on the margins, like I said, of, of the formal economy, how to bring them in. And the basis for this gender-based uh, business model is effectively how do we communicate that for every dollar invested in a woman, what's that net return? And the reality is that to be able to understand that net return, you have to understand the global view of the role of women in Latin America and the Caribbean, which is a, a woman empowered in the formal economy with a job with a steady salary and income will pay their taxes. The woman, we will pay into the social programs, into the pension systems. We will ask for mortgages. We will buy a car. We will send our kids to school. We will vote. And women who do all of that help design sustainable growth and moving away from the academics of, of what does growth actually mean. It means strong communities. It means ties between communities and governments. It means a strengthened socioeconomic system that at the end of the day is what keeps stability at its core centered for these countries. And so in, an investment in a woman is really an investment in your entire society. And so what we're doing is we're in the process of designing this gender-based business model so that we can go in and speak to governments who have to make the tough choices because sometimes for them, it is zero sum. If I invest in a project focused on women, that means it's one less road, right? But the reality is maybe you could do both. You can invest in the road and invest in vocational training for women to work on paving the road. So what we're trying to do is again, merge those concepts so it's not zero sum anymore. And so that women are part of the process. And I think that that, marginalization of women and LGBT and handicapped individuals 
I think has hurt the development of the region because you're literally excluding completely productive individuals just because either they live too far, they don't have access, or they just, you're just simply not investing in them. And we want to turn that narrative around. I'm really excited about the work that's being done. We're, we're in the process of de designing this business model. And I'm hoping that in the next month or two, we'll be able to roll something out and start socializing it with private sector partners and governments alike. I have to imagine that investing in women in that whole framework that you just set forth would have an almost immediate impact on schooling and education of children. Because because if Absolutely. you can bring women conversation, you can generate revenue, you can generate income for their family, and then the children have an almost immediate elevation in, in their access to resource, like basic resources that they need. So I'll give you just a quick example. I, I traveled to, to Bogota uh, to hold some meetings in September uh, of last year, and I met with the mayor of Bogota, who I'd known uh, previously from a prior professional life. And she said to me, hey, you know, I really need help. And I said, well, what is it that you need? She said, I have this school. It's empty. I've now refurbished it. And one half is a daycare center. And the other half is four classrooms where I want Venezuelan migrant women to go get trained up so that they can get a cart and start selling bread and coffee. And I said, what's the problem? She goes, I can't get anyone to finance that. Can you give me $200,000? And I said, not only can I give you $200,000 in technical cooperation resources, can I please be here when you inaugurate it? Because that's how you start. But I, I want to say that because we're talking about a lot of big figures, 23 billion in financing, you know, gaps of, of $100 billion in terms of access to credit for women. What, we can throw out figures like that all day long, but what I'm saying is that sometimes it's that drop in the bucket, which is still for a lot of people, $100,000 is a lot of money, but to, to be able to provide training to 50 Venezuelan migrant women in Bogota who would otherwise be begging on the street with their children, we can change that. We can turn that around. You just have to be patient and you have to see, have that vision that it takes that seed for it to grow and to propagate. And that's what the region needs. You inadvertently answered one of the questions that one of um, our audience members submitted, which was in some of these countries, um, men will leave their wives and given the, the framework that you just described, which that women are often with children at home and, and not an, an equal member in the workforce, yeah. it leaves them in poverty because they're they're left without a, a male in the home and without an ability to care for their children. So uh, the question was, do you have programs to help individuals like that? But but it sounds like you certainly do, like the one you just described. We do, and and the reality is, and and I'm saying this to be blunt because I enjoy blunt conversations. That I hear a lot about tipping the hat to the need to ensure that women have access to childcare, equitable access to childcare. We had that debate in our own country. You know, I'm a working mom and I struggled with that. I have now a 10 year old who thinks he's 15, but I still struggle with childcare. And then I, and I go to these countries and I think if your livelihood depends on an ability to have someone trustworthy, know that they will take care of your son so you can work your two jobs and travel the three hours back and forth that it's going to take for you to, to travel, to do the jobs and then come home and do it all over again. 
why can't we do that? I mean, that to me is, is a human right. And, and that to me is what I see as a great injustice in the region that has yet to be addressed. And I'm going to address it. We are going to address it at the IDB. Come hell or high water, we're going to confront these issues that are, have been taboo for so long. But let's be honest, governments aren't responding and we wanna help them respond. We wanna put this on the radar. We don't want it to be a zero sum choice. And we don't want it to be, you know, that that the men are the only ones that have to carry the water because you have to share the burden anyway. The burden of the development of an entire country shouldn't fall on just 50% of the population. Everyone needs to contribute. So I've heard in, in other contexts um, the concept of micro lending, micro loans so directly from somebody in you know country A who's willing to give a thousand dollars to somebody in country B. Do you do anything with micro lending or, or what are your thoughts on that type of? We do. We mostly do it on our private sector side through the commercial bank relationships that I was explaining earlier. We call them through financial intermediaries. What we've been doing is working a lot with those banks in the region to give them the financing that they then send down to through their microfinance institutions. Now, the challenges there are several that I'm in the in the middle of trying to iron out so that we can be more effective. Partly, um, I think microfinance works. I'm a believer in microfinance since I was a young student of development, um, especially targeting women. I think it's proven, everyone talks about the Grameen Bank, but I think time and time again, it's proven that microfinance does work because it, it, it does touch a client that wouldn't otherwise have access to financing. So check, done. I think where we need to, find the improvements, and I say this as the institution, is that we confront a lot of obstacles because a lot of these MFIs, the microfinance institutions and entities, don't aren't credit rated. And so direct, they can't really ever rely on direct financing from development institutions unless they're local because of credit ratings. And I would also argue the other impediment is working at the, what I call the municipal level, the low local level, they often have very difficult times getting access to credit and financing. And it's at that local level that you actually have high impact projects. That's the big irony in development. So how do we overcome that? And that's the, the I, I openly say that and I welcome any comments because we're, we're working through that problem right now, that problem set is really complex um, so that we can move beyond the traditional client base of working with the big banks, which I know will have impact, but where we can be more directly observing and monitoring impact and having uh, a direct say in governance structures, for example, for projects comes at that micro level. And we just have to find a way to overcome those challenges so that we can, again, get into those far-flung areas that present risks for your traditional commercial lender, but not for us. So, um... One of our attendees or several of our attendees uh, this evening are is a group of students from early college high school at the Dallas College at Brookhaven. And several of those students identify as female and they have asked for if you have any advice or recommendations that you can make on how on individuals who hope to lead in business engineering or marketing in the future, what recommendations might you have for them on on being successful in those endeavors. So I welcome the question um, because ironically, as, as a former policymaker, I used to think that I was a strict 
you know, I'm a strict uh, believer that I'm a policymaker. Policy development is its own silo and it is not. It is about business and marketing. So a couple of pieces of advice would be you have to understand that marketing is very complex. You have to have something to sell and you have to make sure that the product works and you have to address the problems in a, in a very sort of upfront way to make sure that you polish the product before you put it on the market. And I would say that that's an experience I've gone through now with the IDB. How do I put the IDB on the map? How do I market it? So a couple of, of, of suggestions is obviously if you want to break into the career and I haven't worked, I'll admit right now, I haven't worked on wall street. As you know, I've had 20, almost 20 years in government service, but what I've learned in my time is that you have to do one of three things you have to number one identify what's that what's your specialization what's your niche what do you want to focus on i'm, I'm going to say that for me in my career um i knew it was going to be latin america and i knew i needed to polish that as a product to kind of get in the door and so that people would see me as an expert or understand that i have knowledge that could be beneficial to them one so find that niche find that specialization that works for you where you can then polish that for yourself and put puts you on the map. The second piece of advice I would say is that just remember that obviously it's it's it takes time uh, to find that niche, but when you do, make sure that you're constantly refining it. Don't abandon the concept of being a student in that industry because you have to constantly keep up because the markets move marketing I'm sure has changed. Business is changing every day. I see that now at the bank. You don't stick to one formula. You have to be agile and adaptive. And I would say that for my career in particular, um, I had to adapt to changing circumstances. You have to, and, and part of the talent that people look at, at least that we look at at the bank is, are you able to adapt to your different environments, context, knowing your audiences? And can you communicate effectively to ensure that people understand what your niche is and what your specialization is. And lastly, I would say just be passionate about where you want to be and how you want to get there. Um, I think tenacity for me has been something that has always been ingrained. Um, I'm originally from New Orleans, where there sort of the, the, the standing assumption was back then growing up, I'm either going to be an oil and gas lawyer or a doctor and stay and go to Tulane, which is an amazing school, um, which all my best friends did. Um, and I was the outlier and I said, no, I wanna go to Washington and, and work at the White House, I think. And everyone wondered what that meant. Um, and I could never explain it. But I think being tenacious and committed to your passion and stick with it uh, because it's going to come to fruition and you'll find that opportunity that's going to allow you to shine. So one of those recommendations was about being flexible and uh, responsive to the, the, the concerns that are or, or issues or challenges that are being presented to you. So um, in that light, what are some of the key challenges that um, IDB is facing in 2022? Great question. Um, I think we have <laughs> two challenges ahead of us. Um, one that I see is how, how do we get beyond COVID? Now, what do I mean by that? Because everyone's trying to, because everyone's trying to get beyond COVID. But what I'm saying is how do we ensure that there's no regression in the thinking of our clients because of concerns of variants and of the next variant that might come up so that they don't lose sight of that long-term goal? Because right now I feel 
there might still be a risk and a vulnerability that if another really horrible variant comes out, we're gonna we're going to suddenly start getting those calls that are less about long term and more about short term. And I worry about it. Um, I'm sure others at the bank may, might have a different opinion of it, but but I I worry about that for two reasons because we want to have long term impact. If we keep if we focus on the fires too much, we're not going to we're not going to gain any ground on the issues of of reducing poverty and eradicating it and reducing vulnerability or eradicating it. So I worry a lot about making sure that we can better balance the short term needs with the long term vision. And I think that's going to be the challenge with the next variant. God willing, we won't see one. I think for also for 2022, for us institutionally, I think our next challenge is executing on the vision. I think the last year we've done an amazing job in designing a vision for, for a 3,000 person institution where everyone's driving in the same direction for the first time in a very long time. So now I want to elevate the IDB. I really want to see a sophisticated development institution that can elevate the level of project design, elevate the level of structured finance deals so that we could be, we are now, but I want us to surpass where commercial banks are. I want us to be on the frontier. I want people to look at the IDB as a referent, not just for Latin America and the Caribbean, but for how development should work and how it should look. So those are sort of, they seem like existential challenges, but they're the fun ones that I enjoyed pursuing. So I, I know we spoke earlier about um, some of the efforts that IDB is taking with respect to energy and ESG challenges and, and really impressive work in that space. Uh, I, would, I would be remiss if we didn't touch on that a little bit and have you tell everyone a little bit about the amazing work you guys are doing in that space. I think in terms of energy and climate change, um, the last year of the IDB has been transformational. Um, I can't help but sort of contextualize it because sometimes it's difficult to understand the level of progress, even for myself to appreciate how far we've come. When we came in, the issues of ESG were definitely on the radar. Our private sector was pumping it out, working on social bonds, working on, on blue bonds. We just issued our first one, doing, doing really innovative things where the markets were. But on the public sector side, we were a little bit, we were we were losing sight of what we actually wanted to focus on. And then the last year, what we've done is we've effectively developed a brand new revamped approach to climate um, to be more ambitious in terms of climate finance goals. Um, we were just at COP26 to announce um, what we've done, which is create a new facility, which is a, a, a vehicle through which we're going to provide financing to countries in the Amazon region to address biodiversity, uh, sustainable land use, uh, to address climate adaptation and mitigation. We're doing a lot more and we're trying to be more aggressive in the Caribbean region in particular. And we're looking at financial instruments too on how we can provide what we're calling cat bonds, which are catastrophic bonds, which could come in handy during hurricanes. We now have a hurricane clause in our, in our loan agreements for, for countries that are vulnerable to hurricanes. And on social and ESG issues writ large, our private sector arm is incredibly focused on how we can use our equity, which is sort of our, our strength to be able to have more impact um, with new and emerging um, 
companies so that we can be sitting at the table and help improving governance, uh, help improving sustainability issues. And we're also being much stricter in terms of due diligence for our private financing um, to ensure that the partners we're working with are also meeting those ESG standards. So in the last year, I, I think there's been a wholesale change in the approach, a much stricter um, perception and view of the importance of ESG. And we're trying to just make sure that we're with the market so that we can keep moving beyond it so we can be on the frontier. So you mentioned just a moment ago, and, and I think previously as well, a, a pretty considerable shift in, in within IDB about your, your vision and your focus and the way that you're doing things, the way that you're um, developing these countries. Can you tell us a little bit about the shift internally at the bank and, and how that came about it and what it looks like? Sure. So I say this because I am a first generation American, um, proud uh, daughter of a Colombian dad and a, an Ecuadorian mom. And I grew up in a household that was very, you know, very American and very, you know, women have rights to everything and access to education growing up in the United States. And then I stepped into the IDB. And for me, it was a huge culture shock. Someone who grew up in the United States, I studied abroad, I lived abroad, I worked abroad, but you know, professionally, I was at my core always surrounded by Americans. And I came into the institution as the first female chief of staff in 61 years. And I thought, no problem. And I confronted a huge culture shock for me, um, even being Latin American, in terms of how the institution viewed women. Uh, and it felt to me um, very challenging at first. Um, and I, I'm really proud of the changes that uh, we've executed. I'd say we, because I'm the first female chief of staff and we have our executive vice president who is the first Latin American woman to serve in that role ever in 60 plus years for the institution. So I'm proud to say that now we have two women um, in leadership positions in an institution that never once saw a woman ever in a leadership position. Um, what we did is we came in and we said, all right, so we've got challenges here. We've got cultural machismo, that's just basic bottom line. And we've got issues of not enough women in leadership, talented women, where are they? And where are they hiding? And obviously in a virtual world, it's hard for me to go through the 12 floors of the bank to try to find the women that I'm trying to find who are talented, but just maybe weren't given the opportunity. And in the last year, I'm really excited because not only myself, but myself with our team looked at the whole bank and said, okay, where are the talented people? Where can we build out and improve this meritocracy, which is how it should be in an institution as big as we are and as important as we are? And in, when I said earlier, we have 26 offices in our, each of our member countries, we have representatives who serve as our IDB ambassadors. When I came in, about three of those were women. And now in a year, we're at nearly 50% are women. And these are women who are highly technical, PhD economists, specialists in their fields, name your field, that were tucked away, that weren't considered, thank you, that weren't considered for leadership positions. I love it. So we went from three to 50% of the 26. And then in the institution at leadership roles, we went from, I believe, none to 17 women running teams, technical, highly technical teams. And I have to say that that is only just the start of the more that we need to do internally, because here's 
my argument and the president and I are completely aligned. If we're gonna go into Latin America and if I'm committed to this gender-based business model that can be replicated and piloted and adapted, we need to, to walk the walk and we need to talk the talk institutionally. You can't go in and say, we believe in gender parity and have no one serve in a leadership position that's a woman. So we have a lot more work to do to be a more diverse uh, bank. We're working on that. But at least in the last year, and that's in just one year, how much work it took, but we're pushing against that grain. We're pushing against that old thinking. And that's, again, it's part of the challenge. And it's part of the fun for me, because I think, especially in my role as chief of staff, I think it's taken a lot for the men in the institution to get used to me and to get used to a woman in this position. It was really difficult, but we're getting there and we've been making really good progress. And I'm excited for the next year because now I think people are finally getting used to it and I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. So we're going to keep at it. Well, that's fabulous. I, I think um, it sounds like really positive change and it sounds like um, not only positive change, but it sounds like those people are really making it a great impact on the organization and on the countries and people that you serve. So that's um, very, very impressive. Thank Hats you. off to you. Um, so we have a few minutes left. The last question I will ask you, is there is there one particular project or initiative or program or something um, that you're most excited about or most um, proud of in your time at IDB that you'd like to share with everybody to to um, let them know. Sure. So this is, it's going to sound a little silly, but the, we have an emerging women's leader program. So I guess I'll mention a project too, to be fair. I'll mention a project. I love all of our projects, but I'll give you one institutional and one operational thing if I could, just the luxury of, of being a panelist and a speaker. There's an emerging women's leadership program at the bank that I think was, was suffering from a lack of attention. And even the women who were participating were pretty feeling pretty much doubted out, like no one understood them. And they weren't even sure that they had a goal. And in the last year, revamping the program, expanding participation, ensuring that both the male and female members of our executive team are active participants as mentors and sponsors for the program, for these women to see the male vice presidents that we have sit down with them and tell them that they matter has completely altered the way women at this institution view themselves. So I'm really proud of that on a personal level. And on a professional level, I have to say it, going from no concept of, of what we wanted to do on climate to having a policy and having a vision to me was probably one of my greatest professional achievements. And I've done a lot of things that I've been super proud of after the fact when I have times to digest, you know, what I've done in life. But that one, because it required a holistic change in how the institution viewed an issue and a real, it requires a real commitment from people to really invest in it. And it was amazing seeing it come to fruition at COP26 um, because you see, it all come together. And I was so proud of our team, um, so proud of our, of our executive team, the vice president, so proud of everyone who contributed because it was a whole of effort from an institution that not that very much long ago was working in silos and didn't believe in teamwork. So there you go. 
Well, congratulations on both of those. They sound like really um, impressive and important achievements. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. I, I greatly appreciated our discussion. I, I hope others did as well. I'm sure they did. Um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Ladies, this was an entirely illuminating discussion. And I think our members, I know our members found this to be incredibly useful, just like I did and engaging. Thank you very much for this discussion. And you both are very impressive. Uh, way to go. And Jessica, I am impressed with the progress that you all have made, particularly in these last sections on women. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. I look forward to hearing more about the bank in the future. So uh, everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, please check our YouTube station for other programs that we've had virtually in the past few years during this drawn out pandemic season. Uh, it is at DFW World. You can check us out on YouTube. Join us if you're not a member. I hope to see you soon at another event. Good evening, everyone. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon.